We're in a message series on the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is a statement of belief written by some of the very early church leaders. And the purpose of the creed was, it was a confession. It was to state the core fundamental doctrines, beliefs of the Christian faith. And last week we said that it is a statement of belief, not a statement of knowledge, because belief is what changes us. Knowledge may be beneficial to us, may be useful, but knowledge generally doesn't change our hearts. Belief does. Belief does. This is a statement of belief. And as we did last week, I'd like for us to stand up together, and we're going to say the Apostles' Creed. It will be written on the screens. We are using a version of the Apostles' Creed that appears in our denomination's a book of confessions, so it has slightly more uh, modern language maybe than the version that you learned growing up. Let us say this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week, we looked at the the very first phrase, I believe, in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Today, we get to the second sentence. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. What does it mean to have a life-changing, a heart-changing belief? In Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Lord. Uh, turn to John chapter 7. Did you bring your Bible? I haven't asked this yet, um, I don't think. If you brought your Bible, will you hold it up? I just want to see how many people brought their Bible. Quite a few brought your Bible. Nice of you holding up your tablets and phones. That does count. Um, thank you. I invite you to bring your Bibles on Sundays. If you do not have a Bible, then we want to give you one. Come see me after the worship service. If you didn't bring one today, you will find one, hopefully, in front of you in a seat, under the seat, uh, to the left or to the right. You can grab that. If you're using one of our Bibles, it's on page uh, 1057. And we're going to start in verse 14. Jesus is, um, he is teaching at a, an important religious festival in Jerusalem. He's at the temple. And this is, that's the background of it. Here we go, verse 14. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and began to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. 
Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, from Abraham, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. When you look at the life of Jesus in the Bible, we see that he constantly was under trial, not just the the literal trial before he was crucified, but he was constantly under trial by the Jewish uh, religious authorities. And I want you to, to think why that is. Because what Jesus did, was it really that wrong? I mean, he, he brought little children back to life who had died and given them back to their parents. Is that so wrong? He gave those who were blind their sight back. He gave those who were deaf their hearing back. He gave people who uh, had leprosy and who were separated from their families. He gave them their families and their friends back by healing them. is what Jesus did, was it, was it that wrong? Why was he constantly under trial by the Jewish religious authorities? You know, these, these wonderful acts of healing were the very acts that the religious leaders used as ammunition to plot his execution. So what was so threatening about Jesus. Well, here's what was threatening about him. What was threatening is he was coming with a new authority. And we saw that in what we read, verses 14 and 15, tell about Jesus teaching in the temple, and the people are amazed at what they hear. Because Jesus was a man from the country. He was, he was not from Jerusalem. He was not around the major Rabbis of the day, he grew up in that small little fishing village known as Galilee. And the running joke back then was, can anything good come from Galilee? It's kind of a funny joke back then, kind of like, can anything good come from Dallas? I don't know if you find that funny today, but maybe not as funny as people back then found making fun of Galilee. Jesus was from Galilee. Can anything good get, can, can, how can this man from Galilee come here and say these amazing things that we haven't 
heard before. It taught with a new authority. See, rabbis back in Jesus' day would, would say things like, well, you know what old rabbi so-and-so used to say? Oh, no, what about rabbi so-and-so? What do you used to say? And they would debate one another, and Jesus didn't do that. He just came and said, no, I, I say to you, this is coming from me. He spoke with authority. Where did he get that authority? Well, he says so in verse 16. Look at verse 16. He says, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. And in this, we see one of the most important things to believing Jesus is Lord. As we said in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus is Lord. And to, to say Jesus is Lord means we commit ourselves to his way. We listen intently to what he says and we want to learn as much as we can. We believe what he says. We adopt his way. We think that his teaching is right. You know, in Jesus' day, in the Roman Empire, there was a campaign slogan. It was known as the good news of Caesar. Caesar is Lord, is what that campaign, campaign slogan would say, Caesar is Lord. It was a gospel, the good news that Caesar is Lord. And whenever a new area or a city was taken over by the Roman Empire, that, that slogan was proclaimed, Caesar is Lord. And that city could submit themselves to Caesar's way, the way of Caesar, the leadership of Caesar. And if they would say that Caesar is Lord, then that city was promised what was known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. They were promised peace. If you follow Caesar, you will receive peace. Now, it was kind of this coercive peace because if you failed to confess Caesar is Lord and live that out, then bad things would happen to you. And along came Jesus. And after his resurrection, his followers, well, they started their own campaign slogan. And it went like this, Jesus is Lord. That was a pledge of allegiance. We will come under Jesus' Jesus's authority. Now, do you think it would have been dangerous for someone to make that statement back in Jesus' day? Absolutely. Would you make that statement if you weren't completely committed to the way of Jesus? No way. Today, it's rather common for people to kind of pick and choose from what Jesus says. You know, people will hear sound bites from Jesus. And they say, ooh, I like that. I like this idea of being kind to others and resisting violence and not loving possessions. They kind of take these sound bites from what they like about what Jesus says, but they might reject some of the other things that Jesus says, like I am the only way into a real relationship with the Father or what he said about being the Son of God, the unique Son of God, or that he's one with God. Oh, I like this kind of this moralistic teaching of Jesus. I don't like 
what he says about himself, but I kind of want to follow what he says about what to do with life. Some people act like he was a good teacher, in other words, but nothing really more. Now, C.S. Lewis, you might be aware of what C.S. Lewis said about this. C.S. Lewis would say, wait, 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 hold on a second. Have you heard what Jesus says about himself? You like his teachings, but have you heard what he says about himself? He says things like, I and the Father are one. He says, I am the Messiah. He tells his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. C.S. Lewis asks, have you heard what Jesus says about himself? Those are remarkable statements. And C.S. Lewis has this remarkable argument about this. He says, there are three things that you can believe about Jesus. You can believe that he's a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he is Lord. You can conclude that Jesus is a liar. It's the first thing he said. And that when he said things like, I and the Father am one, the Messiah, I am he, when he says things like that, he was just lying. <laughs> he, was, he was trying to deceive people, maybe to manipulate them, whatever. But he was lying. You can believe that about Jesus. Or you could believe that maybe he wasn't, intentionally lying. Maybe he was just mentally ill and really thought that he was the Son of God. You know, people have made those kind of deranged claims these days. So you can believe he was a liar or you can believe he was a lunatic, that he was out of his mind. And then C.S. Lewis reasons, okay, if you believe that he is either a liar or a lunatic that he's not really the Son of God, how would you ever believe that he was a good teacher? (laughs) You can't. Jesus doesn't give us that option. Or, if you don't believe he's a liar, if you don't believe he's a lunatic, then he has to be who he says that he is, and Jesus really is Lord. And if Jesus is your Lord, you must conform your way to his way. And to do anything otherwise means you don't see him as Lord. Calling Jesus Lord means you realize that what he says about issues of life, he's more knowledgeable than we are. What he says about relationships, we need to listen to what he says about relationships. What he says about money and how a person is, the value of his life doesn't consist of his possessions. We need to believe that and act upon that. What Jesus Uh, says about status and power that the greatest among you is the one who serves everyone. We need to believe that that is true. That he knows the absolute best way to live your life. What he says about forgiveness, and we always forgive seven times 70 over and over again. You forgive that what he says is best, and we follow that. And and saying that Jesus is Lord means more than we just believe what he says. It means we really want to know all that he says, and we search the Scriptures for what Jesus says about things. We want to learn from him because he's Lord. So it means to 
confess Jesus is Lord. We commit ourselves to his way. Now, when we say the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, what are we saying? Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. You know, Christ was not Jesus' middle name. It wasn't his last name. We are saying that Jesus is Christ. To say that Jesus is Christ means that we commit commit ourselves to his will. And in order to see that, we need to know what Christ means. Let's look at a few terms. Christ. What does Christ mean? Christ means anointed one. So when the old King James Version of the Scriptures say that the angel said to the shepherds, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, what the angel really was saying is he is the anointed one, the Lord, the anointed one. Next term, Messiah. The Old Testament word for anointed one is Messiah. When you hear Messiah in the Old Testament, you read that in the Old Testament, it means the same thing as Christ in the New Testament, anointed one. So to say that Jesus is Christ means you're saying Jesus is the Messiah. But who is the Messiah? So you look at the Old Testament about the promise of the Messiah, and what you read is that uh, it is the promise of, um, of a king. The Messiah from God would be the one who brings God's people victory over all of their enemies and will be their king. So the Messiah was the king. Now we know what Christ means, anointed one. Messiah means anointed one. And who is the anointed one? Who is the Messiah? It is the king, the promise of a king. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, 2, verse 10, kind of explains that or shows that relationship between who the Messiah is and the king. Um, Hannah is given the gift of a son, Samuel, and in thanksgiving and gratitude, she prays this long prayer to God. And at the end of the prayer, this is what she says, The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. He's not talking about two separate people, the same person, the king and the anointed one, the Messiah. That's what that word is in Hebrew there for anointed. The king is the Messiah. Messiah is the king. So when we say we believe in Jesus Christ, we are saying we believe that Jesus is king. Now let me ask you this morning, what was a king known for? Uh, What was the king's chief responsibility? What what do you think? I mean, what what do you think the king concerned himself most with? Probably wasn't being a good husband. Probably wasn't the chief concern of the king. The chief concern of the king was his kingdom, right? His kingdom was a reflection of his kingship. What was life like in his kingdom? That's how you graded a king, right? What was life like in his kingdom? Was it oppressive or was it flourishing? 
king concerned himself with his kingdom. Jesus is king. So what does Jesus concern himself with? He concerns himself with building his kingdom. And this is why Jesus did what he did in the New Testament. He was building up his kingdom because he's the Messiah. He's the king. So how did Jesus go about building up his kingdom? Well, let's look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee. He was teaching in the synagogues. What was he teaching about? He was proclaiming the good news of his kingdom that he was building. And what was he doing to build up his kingdom? He was healing every disease and sickness among the people. And that tells you what life in Christ's kingdom was going to be like. People were going to be healed. They were going to be liberated from things that were oppressing them, that were controlling them, whether it be a disability, whether it be a demon. He was going to liberate people. That was going to be life in the kingdom of Christ. That's what it is today. It's what Jesus wants to do today in his kingdom, liberate people from that which controls them so they can be free. Now, I say all of that to help us understand our scripture today. That's the backdrop to this conversation that Jesus has with these Jews in the temple at this religious celebration, this festival that he's at. So I want us to look at verses 19 through 24. Jesus' point of all this is the nature of his kingdom. Because why? Because he's the Messiah. He's the king. So look at this question that Jesus asked the religious authorities in verse 19. Why are you trying to kill me? Now, we don't know the tone of that question. Uh, maybe Jesus asked it in, in just sheer exasperation and, and puzzlement and frustration, like he's just running for his life and he's just at the end of his rope. Why are you trying to kill me? But I don't think that was Jesus' tone. I really don't, because because he knew quite well why they were trying to kill him. And Jesus never seemed to worry too much about running away from threats. I don't think he was saying that in fear. Why are you trying to kill me? It probably was rather calm. Why are you trying to kill me? As if they needed help thinking through that question. And at first they struggle with it. The Jews say, what are you talking about, man? We're not trying to kill you. Are you possessed by a demon? What, are you loony? And so Jesus helps them out a little bit. And he says, I did one miracle. I did one miracle. Verse 21, I did one miracle. And you're trying to kill me. Now, what miracle is he talking about? You have to go back a few chapters. Chapter 5 of John. What miracle did Jesus do that he's referring to here? Well, he healed a man. His legs were not working for 38 years. He could not walk for 38 years. And Jesus gave that man the use of his legs But it was on the Sabbath day that he restored the man's use of his legs. (laughs) 
And that's why they were trying to kill Jesus. Jesus says, that's why you're trying to kill me. I healed this man. I gave him the ability to walk, which he hadn't been able to do in 38 years. Yet I did it on the Sabbath. And you're trying to kill me because you think that I am a lawbreaker and that I'm stomping on God's will. But then he points out their error in their logic. In verse 22, he says, Yet, because Moses gave you circumcision, though it didn't really come from Moses, it came from Abraham, God telling Abraham, circumcise your your children, your sons. Yet, because Moses gave you circumcision, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Boys were circumcised on the eighth day of their life. It didn't matter what day of the week that eighth day was. They were circumcised on the eighth day. Could have been on the Sabbath day. They were circumcised on the Sabbath day. And Jesus says, well, isn't that interesting? I do work on the Sabbath. I restore this man's legs. I hadn't worked for 38 years, and you try to kill me. Yet the priest does a circumcision on the Sabbath, and you say, thank you very much. Help me understand this. Why are you trying to kill me? And then he tells them, after he has accused them of trying to murder him, he says in verse 24, Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Let me tell you, if if someone was trying to murder me, I could think of lots of other things to tell him, right? But just judge correctly. And Jesus was telling them, you are judging God's will incorrectly. Because, remember what we say, if you say that Jesus is Christ, means you are aligning yourself with God's will. The point is God's will. He's saying, you are judging God's will incorrectly. God's will is that people will be healed. And when you say Jesus is Christ, you're saying he is the Messiah. He's building his his kingdom. And the ground rules of his kingdom is best expressed in this command, love your neighbor as yourself. Find something good to do for a neighbor to bring them a better life. Are we committed, are we really committed to doing good to others? I mean, are we really committed? Because when we say we believe in Jesus Christ, what we're saying is we want to align ourselves with God's will. And God's will, the will of the kingdom of Christ, is that people are healed and liberated and that good comes to them. Are we really committed to doing good to others? Are we really committed to helping Christ build this kingdom? Really, are we really committed? That's what... We're saying when we say Jesus is Christ. The Jewish religious leaders, they believed in the Messiah. They just didn't think that Jesus was the Messiah. Why? They thought that the Messiah would have a much different agenda than Jesus' agenda, one that had much more respect, they believed, for God's law. Because these Pharisees, they were separatists. That's what the word Pharisee means, separate ones. They wanted to separate themselves from all of the non-believers, all the people that weren't serious about following God's law. And if you didn't follow God's law, they would rather look down on you than extend a hand out to you. That's living against 
the kingdom of Christ. And we see this about Jesus and how he interacted with others. Jesus was a divider, but he wasn't a separator. It wasn't like the Pharisees that wanted to separate themselves. Jesus was a divider. He said, I've come to divide based on your loyalties. He said, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in a family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. I will divide you based on your loyalties. Are you loyal to me? Where are your loyalties? There will be some divisions that I create based on your loyalties. But he wasn't a separator. (laughs) He said, you must be loyal to me, no serving two masters. Make a decision, who is your king? But he never separated based on who you were, how much you made, what you looked like, what you did, what you said, what you dressed like, what your past was like. All are welcome into my kingdom, Jesus was saying. And Jesus described his kingdom that he was building as a great banquet. And he said, people will come from east and west and north and south. They'll come from all over the place, in other words. And they will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. They're going to come from all over the place. And they won't look like you, Jesus is saying. Saying Jesus Christ is saying Jesus is the Christ, that he's the king, means we're committed to building up this kingdom by reaching out to people who are different from us. Say, all are welcome. Come in, come in. I'm ready to treat you like a brother or a sister. Are we committed to that today? Jesus was on trial then, but Jesus is on trial today as well. There are plenty of people who think Jesus is irrelevant, Jesus is unnecessary, that Jesus is offensive. There's plenty. You, You avoid talking about Jesus when you're, you know, at the office. Christmas party, right? Even though he did such amazing things to heal people and to restore life to people, he's on trial today. People are like, oh, no, I don't want to hear about Jesus. People think he is just a man, maybe a great teacher, but he's kind of become larger than life throughout history. He's on trial today. So the question is, who do you say that Jesus is? Is he liar to you? Is he a lunatic to you? Or is he Lord? You got those three options. And you may be struggling with that one. Oh, I, I, I say, yeah, I say the Apostles' Creed. I say that he's Lord. Sometimes I don't uh, trust him like I should. And if this is you, I want you to know something. The first step of answering who is Jesus is always faith. The first step is always faith. The first step in answering who Jesus is, the first step is not proof. It is always faith. Because look at what Jesus says in 17, verse 17. He says, Any who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Let me rearrange that. How do you know? How do you find out whether Jesus' teaching comes from God or whether he's just making it all up? Jesus answers, you choose to do the will of God, and then you'll find out. You see that? Faith first, not proof.
and my gosh, there's something about this claim. Jesus is king and Lord makes us say, oh, we want some proof first. <laughs> you give us the proof, Jesus, that you come from God. You're not making all this up, and then maybe we'll follow along with you. And Jesus says, oh, it doesn't work like that. First, you follow. Faith first. Trust first. First, belief first. And then comes the fruit. Then you find out if I'm making it all up or if it really comes from God. And there's a, there's a scene in um, C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair. You know, the Chronicles of Narnia book, The Silver Chair. And it kind of captures this. And there's a, there's a character named Jill, and she has seen the lion. And the lion in this book, if you're not familiar with the books, he represents Jesus Christ. His name is Aslan. And, and Jill sees Aslan terrified because it's just a huge, massive lion. She's hiding out in the woods, and yet she's desperately thirsty. She feels like she's dying of thirst. And she hears off in the distance in this woods, it's the sound of running waters. Like there's, there's a stream over there. So she starts looking for this stream. She walks. She hears it. It's getting a little louder. It's got to be over there. Walks a little further, sees this opening in the woods, and sees the, the brook, the stream, out in the distance. So she walks out there, and then to her horror, she sees what is standing in front of the stream, what's separating her from the water, and it's the lion. So here's the story. How long this lasted, her just standing there looking at this lion, She could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink, she heard. For a second, she stared here or there, wondering who had spoken. And then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. Are you thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. And the lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, asked Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Well, then do you eat girls, she asked fearfully. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. And it didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Why, well, daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. She went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up the water in her hands. And it was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. Here's the point. Here's the deal. 
when you're the lion, you get to call all the shots. You get to make the arrangements. You get to set the arrangements. <laughs> Jesus says, come and follow me. I give you no proof. I, never, I don't give you a money-back guarantee. Just come and follow me, and you will see. Give me your all, and you will see when you do that, that what I say comes from my Father. I'm not making it up. I am the King. I am the Lord. And have you been resisting Jesus as Lord? Have you been resisting His way? Have you been resisting His will? You may need to realize how thirsty you really are. <laughs> and that there is no other stream. That it's, it's the stream by Jesus, Jesus, the stream that is Jesus, or it's, it's nothing. It's Jesus or death. It's Jesus or dying of thirst. It's Jesus. You have to have Jesus. Have you tried other things and just realized, ah, it's not working out. I need Jesus. If you come to him, you will find out that everything that you are deeply hoping for, everything that you need for deep satisfaction, you will find in Jesus, who is the Christ, our Son, the Son of God, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have sent us. You have sent us, Jesus Christ. You've sent, you've given us this gift of your Son. And you gave him your, your Spirit to give to us as a gift so that we know we will always be with you. Your presence will be inside of us. And you said, We can live in your kingdom where you will be our king and you will take care of us and you will give us freedom from what binds our hearts and our minds and fills us with fear and you'll give us freedom from that. And you say we can help build your kingdom and we pray that you would help us to do that. And as we say, we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, that it would make a difference in our hearts and we'd be able to say that with conviction and be willing to live out your way and live out your will. And that would be the most important thing to us is following Jesus. Lord, we make that the most important thing to us. We thank you and we praise you in the name of Jesus.